Welcome to this special holiday episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the origins of the war on Christmas and the Christian persecution complex more broadly, but with a particular focus on how that sense of persecution has been funneled and focused into support for Republican politicians. Before we get started, though, in this last new episode of the year of ours, I just need to mention one last time that we are technically still in the break glass in case of emergency financial situation that started at the beginning of this month. To reiterate for the uninitiated, we suddenly lost our Amazon affiliate funding at the beginning of December, which is like losing 400 members all at once, and we're still climbing out of that hole. After a major wave of support, though, from both existing and new members, we are only about 75 members short. So we lost 400. We've now gained back enough that we're only 75 members short of being made whole. And this is the last time I'm going to be talking about it here at the top of the show. So if you are like me and you've been hearing me talk about this and thinking to yourself, I'm going to be sure to do that the next time he reminds me, this is it. This is your last reminder. So if you can become a member or want to gift a membership, please do. We also gratefully accept one-time donations if you just want to help chip in to get us through this rough patch. Details for everything are at bestofleft.com support, linked, of course, in the show notes. And now, Onto the show with clips today from the Straight White American Jesus podcast, the Thinking Atheist, the Benjamin Dixon Show, the Interfaith Voices podcast, and AJ+. Once upon a time, as you will know, but many of our listeners might not, Baptists were staunch advocates of separation of church and state. And oh, yeah. yeah, and and they uh, you know, believed in that and supported that, and I did, and so I had taken this class that really kind of blew up this myth of Christian America a little bit. And the reason this is significant is I walk into the church office one day and we had a secretary uh who was a little bit older, probably late fifties, um, who was listening to something on talk radio. I'm not sure exactly what, uh, but the theme of, you know, sort of Christian America came up. And I, and this is the folly part of it, in my young, idealistic, 22-year-old, fresh out of college, everybody loves new ideas, naivete, <laughs> entered into this conversation about, well, you know, America is actually not a Christian country. If you look at it, most of the founders were not Orthodox Christians. And I said, Thomas Jefferson, if he were to walk into our evangelical church, wouldn't make a good member. And I talked about why and so on. And I, I thought this would be enlightening. And I don't, know, I don't know what I thought. In retrospect, this is ridiculous. But she burst into tears. And I mean, not, not just sort of crying, not a tear or two. She's sobbing and she's telling me about her father who fought in World War II to defend Christian America and our rights to do this and my right to believe follies like that it isn't a Christian country and so <laughs> forth. And I was really caught off guard. And, and something, again, in retrospect, this is obvious that hit me was, wow, number one, how deeply, how, how deep this current is, this notion that, that we live in a, a quote unquote Christian country and the deep 
emotional investment that people have in that story. And so I wanted to start if we sort of with that as background that one of the ways this this story and this this mythos of Christian America and of, often comes out in sort of public discourse is this appeal to quote unquote Judeo-Christian values or sort of shared Judeo-Christian heritage. And so I want to throw it over to you and say what what's what's the problem with that? And or related to that, why do you think it's 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 a myth to say that America was founded as quote unquote a Christian nation? Sure. So there's a there's a lot of fun stuff to unpack in there, and I can't wait to get down in it. Um, so let's well, let's just start with the term Judeo Christian principles, or even just Judeo Christian, uh, because right there you've got a big problem. Um, yeah. And really, it's a difficult term to pin down because it's it's fake. And I think from a from a scholarly standpoint, you know, there's there's no real solid definition of what the phrase Judeo Christian meant. And I think I get in. This is so important. I think I get into it on like page two of the of the book, of right. the founding myth. Um, you know, Judaism is Judaism because it rejects Christianity, and Christianity is Christianity because it rejects Judaism. Um, that's that's a quote that I threw in uh, at the beginning of the book uh, from I think a, a Jewish theologian. You know, the adding of Judeo onto Judeo-Christian, it's a sop. It's a fig leaf thrown out to make an exclusive and exclusionary term seem a little bit more inclusive. Um, And it was done, really the term gained a lot of strength after World War II when having an exclusionary Christian movement in the wake of the Holocaust seemed pretty ominous and awful. Uh, So that's really where you saw the term start to gain in popularity. Uh, But but really, it's, it's just meaningful and it's it's thrown out there to make Christian nationalism slightly more palatable. But but at its most basic level, Christian nationalism is the idea that America was founded as a Christian nation, that we are based on these Christian principles, and most importantly, I think, is that we've strayed from that foundation. Right. Right. We we've gotten away from it, and and by using that narrative, Christian nationalists today can try to pass policies and laws that take us back to that Christian founding. Um, you know, really, I think that at its most basic level, the goal is to redefine what it is to be an American, so that to be an American is to be a Christian, and to be a Christian is to be an American, and then to redefine the law according to the Christian nationalist identity. And I think that kind of wraps a lot of what you were talking about. The emotional heft that this mythos has uh, comes from that central push, really trying to redefine what it is to be an American. I often do this with my students in a really simple way, where I'll just put like the Ten Commandments up on the screen or something, and I'll say, how many of these do you really feel like ought to be laws, like contemporary U.S. laws? And, and the, the point is very few, almost none of them. Um, and and that, that's sort of what I'm illustrating is that it's not as deep as they think it is. Uh, if I could ask you for a minute to put your, your probably somewhat wonky constitutional lawyer hat on, <laughs> if you're talking with somebody and they say, but no, it's it's based on broad Christian values, right? That's that's the thing. Okay, maybe not personal beliefs, but the, the laws reflect these broad Christian values. In your sort of technical constitutional lawyer sense, how would you respond to that? What, what would you say to the layperson is the kind of framework of the, the kind of constitutional framework we have? What, what 
practice of law or understanding of law does it actually reflect? I mean, I think that the answer to that is very clearly the Enlightenment. The, right. the, the argument that I, that I make in the book, however, is, you know, I, I'm working to undermine Christian nationalism entirely. You know, uh, what, so what I, the question that I asked, the, what I set out to investigate when I was writing The Founding Myth, I, I asked a simple question. Did Christian principles positively influence the founding of the United States of America? Right. And, and the answer to that is no, they didn't. And it, in fact, it's a good thing they didn't, because those Christian principles are often, and especially the ones that are central to the Christian nationalist identity, they're often thoroughly opposed to the principles on which the United States was built. That's what you're getting at when you're putting up the Ten Commandments on the board for your students, right? I mean, the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. It it would be difficult to write a sentence that is more opposed at odds with our First Amendment. <laughs> right. Yeah. You can you can have as many gods as you want in this country. You can worship them. You don't have to have any gods. You don't have to worship anybody. I mean, that is the central one of the central promises of America. You have the freedom of religion here. And the first commandment is absolutely fundamentally and thoroughly opposed to that. So so one of the things that I try to do in the book and the arguments that I try to make is to walk through every single one of the 10 commandments and show why it is opposed to our founding principles and then walk through some of those principles that are really central to the Bible that that Christianity really, really relies on. So the idea that um, Jesus was uh, was died for our sins, you know, vicarious redemption through human sacrifice, the idea of original sin. I look at the governments that are in the Bible. I look at justice in the Bible. I look at um, how the Bible demands obedience, and I compare those principles that are that are really crucial and central to the Bible to the principles that our nation was founded on. And and everywhere you just see this fundamental conflict. It's it's and it's irreconcilable. Now I was a kid in private Christian school and I look back at it and the level of revisionist history that took place mm-hmm. is it's cult-ish. No, it's it's just a cult. I mean, it was, you know, George Washington never told a lie. He was a mm-hmm. saint, right? You know, I chopped down the cherry tree. I'm a very, very, very young child being, for the first time, introduced to one of our founding fathers. And what you have is this sort of sainthood anointed to a man, a good Christian man, who uh, was our first president and who upheld the righteousness that God wanted for an American leader. And then you have all of the others. And of course, all of our founders were believers in the Christian God and Mm -hmm. held to the Christian Bible. And they founded this nation as a Christian nation. I remember when I was much younger and stupid, I remember saying that, you know, you can't separate church and state because without the church, there is no state. That's how heavily brainwashed I was as a Christian youth. And I think to myself, I knew nothing about the Founding Fathers. And yet, when I go and have conversations now with people who talk about, you know, Thomas Paine, John Adams, Jefferson, whoever, um, they remain, number one, ignorant of the facts, but two, hugely convinced that these were not Mm -hmm. just deistic God-believers, but Christian theists, correct? Yes. I I mean, there's a huge thread of that running around. And there are, there are tons and tons of books written on this. And like I said, I devote a couple chapters to it. George Washington's a great example, you know, and in fact, the myth about him, um, 
but not being able to tell a lie after he chopped down a cherry tree. That comes from a book written by a guy named Mason Weems, who was a parson, actually. He was a religious leader. And uh, he wrote his book on Washington specifically to sell. He did not care about historical truth at all. We know the story about the cherry tree is made up. And this is the same guy who gave us the myth about Washington praying in the snow at Valley Forge, which now hangs in the Capitol prayer room in the United States Capitol building, which is kind of amazing. Didn't happen just like the cherry tree thing didn't happen. I mean, and Washington is, is again, he's a great example. You know, he didn't take, when he did go to church, he didn't take communion. He went to church rarely. He rarely, maybe once or twice referenced Jesus in his personal letters and the thousands and thousands of pages of personal letters that we have. Uh, he was on his deathbed for quite a while, uh, could have easily called for uh, some religious solace, uh, could have had taken last rites, specifically did not want to do that. I mean, and generally didn't talk about religion publicly at all, certainly not his personal religion. So this, this is a guy where by all intents and purposes, if he is religious, is very, very private about it. Certainly never used his religion as a political weapon. Have you um, um, gotten it all into the Jefferson Bible? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, I, and, and so I, the, the main point that I try to make though, is that this is a fascinating question and it's really interesting. And I love having that argument, but that it actually doesn't matter, right? Their personal religious beliefs do not matter. You, to show that they are relevant to the argument the Christian nationalist is making, that the Christian nationalist still has to do two things. One, they have, that, they have to prove first that they are Christians, which is very, very difficult to do. Second, they have to prove that that religion then influenced the founding of the United States, which none of them try to connect those dots. And three, they have to go to great lengths to show that they didn't want state and church separate. And that is simply not possible. I mean, the founders were very clear. They were more unified on this subject than they were on others, that religion and government would be better off not mixed together. And, and to me, that is the central argument that we need to be having when we're talking about the founders. We shouldn't be engaging on the, yeah, they were, they were deists. They, were, they would have been atheists today um, as a, fighting back against the, the idea that they were Christian. We should not be engaging on that. It really doesn't matter to the central point. That we are and the central fight that we are trying to have. Does it not, though, speak to intent? I mean, the intent of the founders was this. It was driven by well, look, a personal belief. One yeah, look, like if you are, if you're like, let's, I, I use a couple examples in the book that religious ideas don't claim ownership over every other idea generated by that particular mind. Right. Uh, the, the guys who invented blue jeans were Jewish, but we don't go around calling them Jewish blue jeans. <laughs> right. Like, it makes it makes no sense to do that. And the same thing with vaccines. You know, we don't go calling them Jewish vaccines. You know, they're just vaccines. You have they still would have to prove that those principles, the Judeo-Christian principles or Christian principles influence the founding of the United States, which is the, the argument that this book takes on and disproves. And, and you simply can't successfully make that argument because Judeo-Christian principles are so fundamentally opposed to the Enlightenment principles on which the United States was built that it's fair to say that Judeo-Christianity is un-American. So the founders come here to escape the overreach of a church-state government, right? The Church of England. They come here and in the Declaration of Independence, they do mention God, yes. I mean, some people bring that up as an argument. Hey, look, they invoke God in their Declaration of Independence from the Church of England. 
Yeah, the Declaration is a really popular argument for the Christian nationalists. Um, so I devoted two chapters in the book to that. Um, the, the, I mean, there are a couple things to note. There are four basic references that people use, Christian nationalists use, to try to make this argument. Um, the laws of nature and of nature is God, their creator, uh, divine providence, and the supreme judge of the world. First thing we should note is none of those is Christian. Uh, the laws of nature and of nature's God, if anything, to me, that sounds pagan, not not Christian. Uh, the only one of those that is in the Bible is creator, uh, which is also something that's unique to or not unique to any religion. Every religion pretty much centers around this creator belief. So these are not we can't call them even Judeo-Christian references. At best, they are they are very, very deistic at best. Um, there's another thing to note, which is that two of those were only added later. Uh, at the very end of the drafting process. But to me, the, the bigger question here is, I, or the bigger point is that I try to make, is that the Declaration of Independence is an anti-biblical document. You know, it is specifically rebelling against a government and dissolving the political ties against the government. Uh, mind you, King George was the, the defender of the faith and the head of the Anglican Church, too. And you couldn't do that and be a devout Bible-believing Christian at the same time. You know, the Bible says that uh, in Romans 13, it says that the rulers here on earth were ordained by God. And if the founders had believed that, they would not have rebelled against King George in the first place. The Declaration, the fact that it is a document that rebels, makes it inherently anti-biblical. Again, we see this fundamental conflict between the values of the United States and the values of Judeo-Christianity. The belief that Christians are being discriminated against, which is the the nature of the question, um, actually was much higher in places like Mississippi where, of course, there are very many, a vast majority are, are Christians, and most are evangelical Christians. And uh, that finding was, was the least, that there was very little discrimination in places like Vermont and Oregon, where there are very few uh, evangelicals. So it's almost the exact opposite of what you'd expect, right? People that are living amongst uh, co-religionists, um, where there are very few people in positions of power to discriminate against Christians, that's where the belief that discrimination is uh, greatest exists. It's a fascinating finding. And one hypothesis that you put forward in the piece, and this is a piece of Religion in Public and um, just came out last week, is that it's not from experience that this narrative is taking shape, right? It's not that people in Mississippi or Georgia or places where there are many Christians are, are experiencing that on a daily basis at work, at school, and coming home and, and saying, wow, it's really tough to be a Christian here. Your hypothesis is that media, leaders, pastors are kind of feeding this narrative into pulpits and living rooms, uh, and that's where people are sort of taking hold of it. Um, what leads you to that conclusion? Yeah, well, it's it's a couple of things, and the first is just the it's just the logical conclusion that in a place like Mississippi or Alabama, there really are almost nobody who's who's an out atheist, for instance, uh, that owns a local company or is the mayor or governor or what have you, um, that could you know impose their values or or start to discriminate against against Christians. It's, you know, it's a place where you get asked on as soon as you meet someone. So what's you attend, right? What are you doing on Wednesday night? 
uh, would you like to come to my house, right? That sort of thing. Um, so there's, there's just no structural opportunity for that kind of discrimination against Christians in, in like the South, for instance. Um, and then, you know, so you think about a place like, like Vermont, um, you know, maybe there is, but then of course we, we find almost no evidence that, uh, or no belief really that, that uh, Christians are, are discriminated against. So that's, that's the one, one side of it. Just looking at really high profile folks. So, you know, you could always find this kind of language that, that, you know, secular culture is coming for Christians. You could always find that going back decades, right? And that's where the war on Christmas of notion came up it was it was really a fringe kind of argument that was almost laughable um, but at this point it's really become mainstream so much so that you have the president of the united states coming out and saying that christians rights are are you know threatened that if you let democrats take over if you impeach me um they're going to come for you it's going to be a civil war uh ralph reed said not that long ago that it's going to be open season on christians I mean, really dramatic language from, from people that have very large audiences. Um, and so that's mostly where I'm talking about. It, it almost can't be experienced given where uh, people that espouse, espouse this view are, are living. But two, I mean, just really pre- this kind of language is really prevalent these days. You know, one thing we've we've discussed quite a bit over the last month on this show has been um, the idea of Christian nationalism as an umbrella for other uh, facets of um, both uh, identity formation and opposition. And so, you know, when when you hear the war on Christmas or that uh, it's going to be open season on on Christians, you know, immediately what I think is that's code language, right? It's going to be open season on Christians who are white, who are native born, who are cisgendered who abide by a, a, a patriarchal structure. And so open season on Christians really means open season on this sort of like multidimensional picture of what a Christian might be in this country. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to think back on, on my own experiences. You know, when I was a, an, uh, an evangelical youth in the 90s, I remember this narrative of persecution. I, um, and, and I remember like really f- getting fed it in church and then going to school and like believing it. Oh yeah, we're the persecuted minority. And then what happened before, like the, my basketball games, we'd all pray like, like, you know what I mean? Like we're standing mm-hmm, there, 15, mm-hmm. 15, the coaches included praying to, in Jesus name, all the while <laughs> walking around. I mean, there were so many Christians, right? On the team right. and in the culture that we were right. praying to, in Jesus name, despite <laughs> there being Jewish people on the team, despite there being Buddhist people on the team, the Christians got to pray in Jesus name. And then we went out and we talked about how persecuted we were. Right. So, um, you know, you know what? When I read your piece, I was really interested, and you you just used it here a minute ago in the word elites, and I'm just interested in that word choice. Um, can you tell me how? I mean, why why you use that word? Yeah, uh, well, there's there's a lot to talk about here, so <laughs> let let's talk about elites, and then we can kind of dig back into the connections. I think between uh, what we're talking about here in Christian nationalism, but I think you know this this really is an elite driven notion, um, just like you can go back and find the war on Christmas was really an elite driven notion as well. And it's just expanded because it's it's so incredibly useful uh, for a number of different kind of issue entrepreneurs, organizational entrepreneurs to to keep people together. So you now I don't want to say that this is made up because I think there is a profound and real threat that Christians that Christians feel. Um, but a lot of it is done in order to hold together a Republican majority. Um, to hold together the constituencies of Christian right organizations. 
Um, without that, um, you know, places like you can see it in you know, Vermont and New Hampshire, uh, you know, they can just sort of blend into the culture because everything's fine and people don't feel discriminated against. But that, but that really cuts into uh, the organizational vitality of, of some organizations that have a tremendous amount to lose. Um, Republicans have been governing now with a minority of the population for uh, well over a decade. Um, but, and mostly that's built on evangelicals outperforming or outvoting um, the rest of the population. They've been voting at incredibly high rates. They're punching way above their weight uh, for more than a decade now. And if they don't do that, they're going to lose. Um, and that's really all there is to it. So they need to find a number of different ways to do that. Um, and one of them is Christian nationalism. And you kind of flip that around and say, that's sort of the positive side of it. Uh, the negative side of it that would motivate would be this fear, right? Driven by persecution um, and uh, discrimination beliefs. And so I think they really work hand in hand. Um, but it's it's definitely driven and promoted by uh, Republican elites, obviously, and that's that's kind of a new innovation to use it so so blatantly. Um, but this kind of language has been used for a while by Christian right elites, and you can see that on sort of the conspiracy theory side, as well as some of the more kind of mainstream uh, Christian right organizations. Today's episode is sponsored by the podcast Physical Attraction, which is about science, technology, and the future, all from a physicist's perspective. So it gets real nerdy real fast in a great way. They do two types of episodes. Some are deeply researched, scripted episodes in which the host explains something really complicated, like whether we could power the whole world just by putting enough solar panels in the deserts while other episodes are interviews with experts, scholars, and thinkers in which they cover a huge range of fascinating topics, from the birth of stars to the way the world might end, like nuclear fusion or artificial intelligence or economic inequality, climate change, cosmology, and more from the $100 billion venture capital fund trying to accelerate the technological singularity to the life and times of scientists in the Soviet Union. I have only scratched the surface, but I've definitely enjoyed what I've heard so far. Find Physical Attraction wherever you listen to podcasts or at physicspod.com. That's the Physical Attraction podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Conservatives have mastered the art of being both in power, but pretending as though they're out of power. Conservatives have mastered the art of pretending as though they are oppressed when in actuality they are the oppressors. Very straightforward. When Donald Trump won in 2017, they won power. They had all the branches of the government. But they instantly and immediately acted like they were powerless so that they can forward narratives that would make it seem like Justice is on their side. The reason they always talk about stuff like the war on Christmas is because they understand that there is a value to being able to convince their supporters that they are on the side of justice and they are the ones who are being oppressed. Therefore, we should galvanize your righteous indignation 
and you should stand up and fight against the oppression of people who are in power. They have they understand that if people if individually, if an individual feels like they have been slighted, it energizes the, the pursuit of justice inside of them. Somebody steals your lunch. You feel like you have a righteous cause to go and snatch your lunch back. Right. Somebody steals your 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 car. You feel like you have been slighted. You feel like you have been victimized. You feel like you've been oppressed and you have the right to go and seek justice. That energy that you get from the feeling of being um, oppressed or done wrong or abused or mistreated or cheated. That feeling that you get is powerful. It's powerful enough to overthrow empires. Right. Every every narrative that you pick up in the Bible is it has like a narrative of justice, like it has the people who feel like they have been oppressed by Group A, who are now rising up to get victory over Group A. Same thing throughout history. That's this is why this is why it's so important to the conservatives that we don't teach history from the perspective of the people's history. Leaves the name Howard Zinn's book, who gives the narrative of American history from the perspective of the indigenous people, from the workers and the labor rights movement. Right. Because it's a totally different narrative. The real story of America places the narrative of the just in the hands of the people who are trying to survive America. Conservatives 100 percent understand that it is necessary for them at all times to have power and to pretend as though they're powerless. Because if they don't pretend like they're powerless, then people will become complacent. Right. People won't have that anger. They won't have that, quote unquote, righteous indignation. They won't feel like they are, are suffering. They won't feel like they are oppressed. And more importantly, it, it, it makes these people who have all the power in the country look at people who have no power and look at like pe- people from the trans community. And all of a sudden, the big bad wolf for Fox News viewers and conservatives are a group of people who literally have the least amount of power in our society. So the reason I'm talking about this is is because we saw this happen in real time in 2017. Donald Trump came into power. He had the White House. He had the Supreme Court. He had the House of Representatives. He had the Senate. More or less, he had the Supreme Court. But they had an overwhelming majority of power. They could do anything that they wanted to do. They had all the power. And what did they do instantly? One, they wielded that power to get all the tax breaks that they wanted. But two, they instantly started conversations about a civil war as if they were oppressed. It is it is the masterstroke of propaganda. To be able to have all the power in this country and to pretend like you're powerless, to be able to pretend as though you are oppressed when in reality you are the oppressor. And that is the masterwork of conservatism in this country. And it is on purpose because if the people ever get the sensation that they're wrong, that, wow, wait a minute, I'm oppressing this group. They could. Do you know how I mean, that will utterly neutralize 
that will neutralize a conservative movement. If any of their supporters ever get a moment of a brief epiphany to realize, wait a minute, you mean I've been the one oppressing this group? That's why they reject racial uh, bias training. That's why they uh, reject critical race theory. That's why they reject the people's history of the United States. That's why they reject all these notions because they cannot let their supporters ever get the sensation that they are wrong, that they are the oppressors. Because what happens when you get the inclination that you've done wrong and that you've been the oppressor? If you have any type of empathy in you whatsoever, you're not a full blown sociopath like most of the Republican leadership and Donald Trump most certainly is. Then you you will instantly feel a sensation of guilt and you would start to consider the other person's perspective. In order for them to never consider your perspective, you have to always be more powerful than they are, even though simultaneously you're powerless. Gray Wolf Rainsfall said, I call it the Trayvon Martin effect, whereas the victim is the murderer and the murderer is painted as the victim to defend the indefensible. I couldn't have said it better, Greg, but I'm going to put it back on the screen. The Trayvon Martin effect, where the victim is the murderer and the murderer is painted as the victim to defend the indefensible. This is the handiwork of sociopaths who understand what's necessary to always remain in power. To always remain in power, you have to snatch justice, the very idea of justice. You gotta snatch that away from people who you oppressed. The way they maintain it is by snatching away the narrative of justice from the people who have been abused and systematically oppressed in this country and trying to find ways of making the oppressive group, the group that does the oppression, feel like they are the victims. That's why every Christmas we have a war on Christmas because they gotta make sure that these Christians feel like evangelical Christians specifically feel like they have been victimized in this country. I, I wanted to bring up the idea of feelings because it seems that that narrative expresses it, it puts into words and it puts into a story feelings of threat. That it's not that you're going to take away our rights. Here, and this is me talking. It's that we're going to lose our power. We're going to lose our our dominance. And so we have to frame this as we are being persecuted. And it, you know, this is a trite saying, but it bears repeating that when you're used to privilege and power right? Equality feels like you're the victim, right? When all of a sudden things yep. become more equal yep. for others, it feels like you're somehow the victim when, uh, you know, from, from, from many other perspectives, it's, it's just the, the idea of trying to get everyone on equal footing rather than victimizing or persecuting or, or, or what have you on any yeah. particular group. So. Uh, I think, I think that's well said. Um, you know, I think the, the dynamics that we're seeing here are almost unintelligible unless you understand that they're coming from this position of power and really unquestioned, right? I mean, these basic assumptions about how society works, about what you do in certain days of the week, uh, you know, are just, they're so ingrained that any upsetting of that is, is really shocking, right? So, I mean, some of it gets down to, to values and how that's represented in American politics, but it, it goes much deeper than that. 
into just, you know, how we greet each other, what holidays we celebrate. I mean, it, it, it really, to some, feels fundamental and, and crossing like every, every element of, of uh, you know, their culture, right? And so, you know, when, once you start to view it from that angle and you start to hear the diverse uh, um, communication from elites that targets all these different aspects, it really starts to feel totalizing. Um, you know, and that once you think about it exactly as you said, you know, kind of reverberating around, you know, Wednesday night Christian Bible study uh, groups, that's where I think that fear really starts to build. I mean, especially, you know, when you think that there's almost no counter narrative that's that's being expressed, if you're not interacting on a, on a, reg- on a regular basis with religious nuns, if you don't know any, if there's none in your family, if nobody's willing to come out and talk about it, there's no kind of owner that would say, oh, I, I know this person. They're not like this. Um, you know, so put all those things together. And I think you're exactly right to say that, you know, this really is an emotional thing. And that emotion can be a really strong driver, both to support a particular set of groups, but also to set set off and exclude another set of groups, right? For sure. And, uh, you know, th- that last point you brought up seems really important, which is, if you know, you can pump this story, elites, Republican and Christian elites can pump this story into churches and schools and living rooms. And then the, the last part you said seems so important to me, which is if you don't know folks, if you don't know anyone who's part of the group you think is persecuting you, then it's so easy just to create a demon, create a boogeyman. And it's also easy to say, well, I don't know any. So there may, must not be that many of them, but they're just over there in California or they're over there in New York City or they're over there in Washington, D.C. trying to come and get me. Even though every time I look around, I don't know any of these people. Like, who? who yeah. Where do they get off running the country? Where do they get off taking <laughs> power or or claiming they have the right to govern? I don't know any of these people. Look around. I only know the church going, Bible believing, uh, mainly white, you know, Christian people. So, um, you know, one of the things this also brings up is if you don't know any folks outside of your group, if you live in a homogenous society, you often sort of think that the folks outside of your group have ill intentions toward you. And, you know, you wrote another really great piece uh, called, uh, this is from December of last year, so just a couple of months ago, but it's called The Inverted Golden Rule, Are Atheists As Intolerant As Evangelicals Think They Are? And I want to get to that idea of the inverted golden rule. I just think it's fantastic. But can you break down the, the, the findings of that piece for us real quick? Sure. It's, it's related in some ways, um, kind of following the same sort of elite communication that that I was talking about in the in the piece that motivated today, um, but the the general idea is 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 the same that uh, there have been a number of, of folks like President Trump and others that have said that Democrats and atheists are coming for you. They're going to strip you from strip you of your basic rights and liberties. I mean, not just things that you know we disagree about public policy, about abortion and tax cuts, and whatever, but but this is about your freedom of speech. Your basic freedom of religion is going to be under attack if um, if power shifts. And so at some point uh, a few years ago, we decided to actually ask people, um, hey, you know, what do you, th- what do you think? If the tables were turned um, and these groups were in power, would, would they respect your rights and liberties? And we asked a, cu- a couple about a couple of different groups. We had Republicans, we had Democrats, we had atheists and, and others. Um, and, you know, pretty surprised to find out that that there were a lot of folks, and especially among evangelical Christians, that thought that Democrats and atheists were going to strip them of their liberties. Um, it's been a longstanding uh, uh, 
survey research tradition to ask about political tolerance. And this goes back to the 19, 1950s um, with the communist scare, um, asking about political tolerance. Would you extend basic rights and liberties to, to other groups? So that was kind of the big frame that we were starting with. And then we kind of flipped it and asked about this tables are turned thing. So we have data on whether Democrats and atheists would extend rights and liberties to evangelicals. Um, and it turns out that they they would. Now, it's not perfect. They're not going to do it in every situation that you could imagine. Um, and that's pretty common among Americans. Americans aren't that tolerant of, of, uh, of people. Um, but but Democrats and atheists are more tolerant of evangelicals than evangelicals are of Democrats and atheists. Um, I don't know that we're too surprised by this, but uh, <laughs> you know, then we can... <laughs> We can we can think you know what's what's motivating this, and I think it comes back to this the same story that we're talking about today that uh, and what what I term the inverted golden rule. Um, so the inverted gold, golden rule is do unto others as you think they'll do unto you, right? So you know they're gonna they're gonna take away your liberty, so you better take away theirs first is the idea, um, yeah. and that's not necessarily scriptural. What you found is sixty five percent of atheists would sort of give the rights to, uh, to engage in, in political activities to their um, evangelical counterparts. But the, the number of evangelicals willing to give those rights to atheists or others was something like 32%, right? So yeah. like half, um, yeah. only one third of the, the, the evangelicals are willing to, to allow the liberty to, you know, to engage in these political activities to the people they deem as their kind of political and cultural opposites. Yes, um, <laughs> that's exactly right. I mean, so that's, that's really low. <laughs> I mean, you can't really, you can't really sustain a democracy. If you're, you know, this is this is the gist of it, right? It, you can't really sustain a democracy. If you think, if I lose to this group, I'm not going to be able to advocate for my own political positions. I'm not going to be able to speak. I'm not going to be able to organize. I'm not going to be able to teach, you know, earn a living. Yeah. Um, you know, you there's almost no recourse then except violence to try to prevent these people from uh, from taking power. And so now you understand why there's talk about a coming civil war, right? And so they're trying to re-engineer this kind of narrative in reverse to say, if you let those people take charge, then you're going to have no recourse but civil war. And so that's what's that's right. So that's that's the importance um, of this is that you know you really need to act now prevent this coming apocalypse. You know, we had an episode uh, during the impeachment uh, inquiry that that was on evangelicals and and a civil war. And, you know, the, the rhetoric surrounding impeachment was this is the beginning of a civil war, right? Uh, yep. Just just last month, uh, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. got together with the governor of uh, West Virginia. And the governor of West Virginia said, uh, you know, if you live uh, in Virginia and you feel like your county and your your community is being given over to these uh, liberal uh, progressive uh, democratic elites then you're welcome to secede from from Virginia and join West Virginia right and in in some ways it was a laughable uh, press conference but it symbolically it really represented this idea that there's no ability to work together and in fact we don't want to work together like pluralism dialogue discussion that's right. really not right. what we're after we're either after power or if, if we're not going to be in power, then violence. That's Those are our options.
President Trump gave a speech that was very authoritarian about bringing law and order. You know, you can draw a line historically to other presidents that have used that and kind of the racial undertones of that law and order and cracking down on troublemakers, those types of things, and declared himself an ally of peaceful protesters. Um, but then right after that, they cleared the square using flash grenades and, and tear gas. Um, even the clergy of the, um, you know, the church that he was going to go stand in front of, those people were forced away from their own church who had been there all afternoon giving out water. So he walked over and after giving this speech about cracking down on troublemakers, held up a Bible and, and took pictures, didn't go in the church, didn't talk to the clergy of the church, didn't open the Bible, didn't quote from the Bible, didn't recite anything from the Bible. So it was really wild to see this juxtaposition. For us, I think squaring that authoritarian rhetoric with then these religious symbols of a Bible held in the air in front of a church um, Christian nationalism really helps us make sense of what was going on there. And I think what you can see throughout his presidency and even before as he was a candidate, when his back is up against the wall, he is going to speak out to those that um, have most consistently supported him, which are white evangelicals. And now, for us, we think Christian nationalism, which is very uh, popular among white evangelicals, helps explain exactly why. And so, those religious symbols were basically used to help baptize that uh, authoritarian speech as this is a part of God's plan. And Trump is the only person who can save us, in quotes, um, from them as he says it, you know, the people that are rioting or whatever else. And so, again, Christian nationalists in the U.S. don't necessarily need Trump to be religious, to open a Bible, to go to a church or pray with clergy. They want to see someone who says, I see you and I hear you. I, I will help enact your particular vision for the country by providing access to the levers of power and so that they can use those then to transform the culture in their own image. And I think Monday was one of the most perfect distillations of that relationship. Can you give us a little background on what you study and what got you interested in it? Yeah, I'd love to. So Christian nationalism, uh, as we define it, is this desire to see the U.S. be distinctively Christian in its uh, national identity, its sacred symbols, and its public policies. And the desire is to see Christianity privileged in the public sphere above other religions. Uh, but in our research over the years that culminated uh, in a book that my colleague Samuel Perry at the University of Oklahoma uh, that he and I just released this year, uh, we find that associated with Christian nationalism are a lot of other things like authoritarianism, even white supremacy and sexism. So when people are arguing for, we want America to be more Christian, especially if those people uh, are white um, and Protestant, they have a very specific vision for what that America should be. And a lot of times, it's to benefit and privilege their own group above and beyond other groups. What do you mean when, it, when you say those who may realize or not that they are part of this movement seek to privilege Christianity, white Christian identity mm -hmm. over others. You know, this idea of privilege is multifaceted, but 
What it gets down to, I think, is that when we talk about Christian nationalism and seeing Christianity privileged in the public sphere, what we're really saying is that they have access to power. And so, one example that you can see um, is when you hear people talk and they say, we need to get the right people in office, Christians that embrace this Christian nationalism ideology. If we can get them in office, then the U.S. is going to be on the right path. When somebody says, I want the right person in office, how do you as a social scientist then unpack what that means? I think a lot of times it's just seeing who then they're supporting and then go and look at those people. And a lot of times um, who they're supporting, they'll say they're a Christian, that God has blessed the USA and we need to enact Christian principles. And they'll use those code words um, and kind of this subtext of, you know, this is the way that it's always been and the way that it always should be. And, and that's what they want to do. So I think that helps us see exactly what they mean when they say the right person. Um, look at who then they're supporting and you'll see that they'll, again, from President Trump on down. And, and through the years, this isn't a new phenomenon. It's been with us. They'll always be pointing to the United States is, is blessed because of God and we need to return to that. We need to rely on that. We need to follow the Bible, all of those things. Does that just mean blessed in a general sense, or does it mean blessed to, to deliver certain outcomes? When they say blessed by God, um, it, it isn't neutral because then they feel, and, and they'll tell us this over and over, that in order to either maintain that blessing or to return to that blessing, we need to do X, Y, and Z. And generally, these other actions that we need to do to stay blessed as a nation um, will generally be in favor or privilege their in-group and probably um, hurt some out-group because a lot of times it becomes tribal. When they say God has blessed us, they see a very particular God, and it's generally the God of, of white Protestant Christianity. Unpack the word troublemakers for me because I want to understand what you hear when you hear the president say, trust me, I'll take care of the troublemakers. So, kind of two things. When we measure Christian nationalism, you're right in that some of these phrases that we ask Americans sound so innocuous. When Trump, especially in this um, example, is talking about troublemakers and cracking down, um, based on research, Josh Davis, a, a colleague of ours that has written on this, and others, um, and historians too, are showing that some of those phrases are really, they began to emerge in the 1980s um, in reference to inner city black Americans. There were racial um, implications to saying troublemakers are, are cracking down. And so those that, even in our own research, we find that sympathize with Christian nationalism or strongly embrace it, they're more likely to agree that police treat blacks the same as whites, and they're more likely to agree that police shoot blacks more often than whites because blacks are inherently more violent than whites. And so when we're talking about state-sanctioned violence towards black communities, you know, when Trump is saying he's going to crack down on troublemakers, um, these shows of force in the past have fallen on minority communities more often. And for white Christian nationalists, 
you know, they won't just approve of them, but they'll see them as necessary because they have seen that this outgroup or they have identified this outgroup, these troublemakers, um, or in other quotes, you'll see people talking about thugs or black thugs using these words um, to basically say that this group is deserving of state violence, that we have to use that in order to keep them in line. I just want to toss in here a little bit of a bonus clip because it fits so perfectly. I, I can't let the opportunity go by, but it's going to take me as long to explain it as it will take you to listen to it. This is from the golden age of Bill O'Reilly, which is perfect for a War on Christmas episode. He, he was a four-star general in the War on Christmas before he was fired for uh, sexually harassing everyone he ever met. But this clip is actually not about the war on Christmas. It's about immigration policy. But you will see why the two are connected, because this is a demonstration of how to be both intellectually consistent and intellectually bankrupt. Because for Bill, whether it's about immigration, workplace harassment, or Christian persecution, it's all about maintaining that WCMPS. And here he is discussing it with John McCain. Change, pardon the pun, the whole complexion of America. Am I wrong? No, you're right. The second thing that the, on the left they're against is is the temporary worker, as you know. We say two years, go back for a year, two years, go back for a year. They don't want that. They don't want them to have to go back. But, but the strategy is... People can come and work. Do you understand, and I'm not saying this in a condescending way, you're smarter than I am, sure. but do you understand no. what the New York Times wants and the far left want? They want to break down the white Christian male power structure, of which you're a part, and so am I. And they want to bring in millions of foreign nationals to basically break down the structure that we have. In that regard, Pat Buchanan is right. So I say that you've got to cap it with a number. This is the story of the man who helped turn conservative evangelicals into a political force. I want to talk a little bit about how much our family respects and admires Paul Weyrich. I want to be like Paul Weyrich when I grow up. Paul Weyrich has been called the main architect of the religious right. Here he is in 2005. Those people were not active in politics, and I served as sort of a coach to get them active in the political process. He also co-founded conservative think tanks like the Heritage Foundation, and the Free Congress Foundation. And he managed to galvanize the evangelical vote around a man who wasn't even an evangelical. God bless America. Does that feel familiar? Because a similar thing happened in 2016 with the election of President Donald Trump. Two Corinthians, right? Two Corinthians, 317. That's the whole ballgame. Is that the one? Is that the one you like? I think that's the one you like because I loved it. Hey fam, I'm Imayan and this Sunday we're going to look at the man behind the evangelical political movement and how it wasn't abortion that created the religious right in the United States. (music) 
You might have been told that the movement began with Roe v. Wade, but according to Randall Balmer, a religious historian, it actually began with Paul Weyrich. One of the most cherished myths of the religious right is that this is a movement that got its origins in reaction to the Roe v. Wade decision. It's a great story. It's been repeated many, many times. It is also utter fiction. It was Weyrich's calculated effort that made the religious right a political force, and his plan took years to complete. Conservatives were wandering around lost in the liberal wilderness, and then Paul Weyrich came to Washington. When Weyrich arrived in Washington, D.C. in the late 1960s, he was to the right of more liberal Republicans, which made him a minority within his own party. Back then, the worlds of religion and politics were largely separate. But Weyrich was determined to change that by courting white evangelicals. The group had retreated from politics after the so-called Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925, which really centered around teaching evolution in schools. Not only did white evangelicals lose, but they also were humiliated in the public eye. Paul Weyrich, according to his own account, had been trying since the 1964 presidential campaign to get evangelicals active in politics. He tried everything. He said he tried the school prayer issue, he tried the abortion issue, he tried pornography. In the end, Weyrich landed on school segregation in the South. Some carried a doll in a miniature coffin, an effigy of federal judge Skelly Wright, who ordered the admission of five Negro girls to formerly worst grades in New Orleans last week. And I have to give you a little bit of a backstory first, so please stay with me. In 1970, public schools in seven states were racially segregated. This was over a decade and a half after the US Supreme Court ruled segregated schools were unconstitutional with its Brown versus Board of Education decision. And Mississippi was one of the states fighting hardest against integration. State leaders claimed that their freedom of choice system allowed black children to attend white schools. In reality, black families were subject to intimidation if they tried to enroll. And some white families were so opposed to integration that they abandoned public schools altogether. In Holmes County, Mississippi, there were no white students left in the public school system after just two years of desegregation. So where were they all going? Well, between 1966 and 1970, the percentage of private schools in the state rose and the number of students attending those schools tripled. Most of this growth occurred in black majority districts. There were segregation academies, church sponsored, that were applying for tax exempt status. Then in 1969, a group of African-American parents in Holmes County sued the Treasury Department to prevent three new segregation academies from getting that tax exempt status, and they won. The court ruled that any organization that engages in racial segregation or racial discrimination is not, by definition, a charitable institution. The following year, President Richard Nixon ordered the IRS to enact new policy denying exemptions to all segregated schools. In 1971, the Green v. Connolly District Court case ruling upheld the new IRS policy, and evangelical leaders didn't like it, which is where Paul Weyrich re-enters our story. Paul Weyrich finally found the issue that would get the attention of people like Jerry Falwell, who had his own segregation academy in Lynchburg, Virginia, Bob Jones Jr. of Bob Jones University, and a broader array of evangelical leaders. Weyrich and Falwell managed to shift the grounds of the debate. They turned it into a conversation about government interference and religious freedom instead of what it really was, a defense of racist policies. They used the issue to attack Democratic president and evangelical Jimmy Carter, even though it was Republican president Richard Nixon who came down hard on segregation academies. Bob Jones University lost its tax exemption status a year and a day before Carter was inaugurated. 
So Weirich had figured out how to win over evangelical leaders, but to win elections, he still needed an issue to get grassroots evangelical voters to the polls. He realized that defending racial discrimination might not be it. Now this is where the abortion debate comes in. Here's Falwell in 1982. But pause. Balmer says evangelical leaders didn't pursue abortion as an issue right away. Jerry Falwell, by his own admission, did not preach against abortion until February of 1978, more than five years after the Roe v. Wade decision of 1973. The key moment for abortion comes in the 1978 midterm elections. Weirich then resolved that he would go out and elect some improbable people. Weirich threw all his effort into getting anti-abortion Republican candidates elected in Minnesota and Iowa. The final weekend of the campaign, pro-lifers leafleted church parking lots, and two days later, in an election with a very low turnout, all four Democratic nominees lost to pro-life Republicans. That's where Weirich realized abortion was the issue he could use to bring evangelicals to the polls and maybe even turn them against one of their own, President Jimmy Carter. Before he was elected, Jimmy Carter was a Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher. And what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love? He embodied the idea of progressive evangelicalism and won the presidential election in 1976. In 1979, Falwell created a group called the Moral Majority, but the term was actually coined by Weirich. The Moral Majority declared war on abortion and homosexuality. Then the group enlisted the help of Francis A. Schaefer. Schaefer worked with C. Everett Koop to produce a series of films called Whatever Happened to the Human Race and toured the country screening them for evangelical audiences. Here's what the films looked like. The fact that human life is being devaluated is demonstrated by some of the major issues which are being debated by society today. Abortion, infanticide, euthanasia. And as that series of films begins to travel and circulate across North America, evangelicals become finally attuned to the abortion issue in advance of the 1980 presidential campaign. Ronald Reagan courted conservative evangelicals, and he won their support despite the fact that he signed a bill making it easier for women to have abortions back when he was the governor of California. Here he is employing explicitly religious language in his acceptance speech. Can we begin our crusade, join together in a moment of silent prayer? Reagan is a man who wasn't even a regular church attendee. Yet during his presidential campaign, he spoke to 10,000 evangelicals at a rally in Dallas, Texas. He talked about the unconstitutional regulatory agenda directed by the IRS against independent schools, AKA segregation academies. He mentions creationism. He also mentions the Internal Revenue Service going after the tax-exempt status of segregation academies. He does not mention abortion in the course of that speech. So even as late as August 1980, the Republican Party was not sure that abortion would work for them as a political issue. Listen, there are a number of reasons Reagan won the election, but he very well might have tapped into something that Trump and Steve Bannon utilized decades later. In the 2016 
election, 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump, a man who, at least on the face of it, does not does seem to be a logical representative for family values. Evangelicals have been able to persuade, at least themselves, that they are victims of some sort of religious discrimination. Christianity, it's under siege. Farmer also says there are parallels between the beginnings of the religious right and the rhetoric that Donald Trump used during his presidential campaign. The 2016 election allowed the religious right finally to circle back to the founding principles of their movement. And the founding principles, sadly enough, are racism and racial segregation. We've just heard clips today, starting with the Straight White American Jesus podcast, talking with Andrew Seidel about why the tenets of Christianity are at odds with the founding values of America. The Thinking Atheist also spoke with Andrew Seidel and focused on the emotional connection people have to the idea of a Christian nation. Straight White American Jesus, in two parts, discussed the fallacy of Christian persecution in America. Benjamin Dixon broke down how the only way for oppressors to hold on to power is to maintain a sense of justice for their cause by insisting that they feel persecuted themselves. The Interfaith Voices podcast used Trump's Bible photo op during the George Floyd protests as a window into the minds of Christian nationalists who support him, and AJ Plus told the story of Paul Weyrich, the person who deserves the most credit for marrying the evangelical movement and the Republican Party in unholy matrimony. That's what everyone heard, but members also got a bonus clip also from straight white American Jesus discussing the ironic twist that it is the separation between church and state that has helped America become as religious as it is with Christians holding such a firm grasp on power. For non-members, that bonus clip is linked in the show notes and is part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find it if you make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked, and now... We'll hear from you. Hey, Jay. Probably already know I've uh, kicked up my pledge. I renegotiated with the New York Times. I hadn't done so last year, and they raised the price. And, you know, you get all those promotion rates. So I, I renegotiated with them, and I'm giving you the most of the remainder of my media budget. And I got the introductory rate of the New York Times. We gotta give it to you in your time of need. Hope that helps. And I'm gonna get you those uh, five uh, referrals because I I need to have this this best of the left art. You know, I don't don't need a hoodie. I don't need anything I can buy. Right? I can buy it. I don't really need it. But you have this artwork that I can only get if I could refer five people. Uh, it did uh, seem to motivate me that I I must have this. <laughs> it's sort of true though. Silly as that absolutely is. Uh, you know, 
like uh, felt a little competitive. So there's no way I'm getting get to fifty. I, I just I'm not a very good salesman. If I did, I'd make more money. But um, so it was really easy. Recommend everybody do that to get their at least get the nifty wallpaper uh, for their phones. And um, I, you know I wouldn't lie about how easy something like that is. It was actually really simple and able to to share the 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 show pretty easily and I got pretty good feedback from everyone that you know said oh thanks thanks for sharing and if I have some time I'll check it out I told them the circumstance I don't normally do this kind of thing it's not my character but the show uh good work you'd like their opinions and uh and they got their ad revenue sort of true want to get into it over messenger and uh you need to help them out and listen so Hopefully we grow the audience, get the get the good work you're doing out there, the great media coverage you're doing, and uh, hopefully you get on, get those 400 members, or at very least 400 members worth, an extra $3 from every existing member, and uh, you get on stable footing. All right, man, good luck. Just know that we're out here doing our part, trying to get you back on stable footing. Better than without Amazon destroying the world anyway, I guess, hopefully in the end. All right, take care. Hey Jay, it's Zach the Theologian. I just got done listening to your COVID response post and it's cathartic in a way because they're saying what I'm thinking. They're angry like I am, but I'm angry at the end of it still because all we're doing is revealing increasing levels of incompetence and increasing levels of dispassion really for our fellow human. And my thoughts are just, what I'm missing, and I checked this for the last two or three and you guys are having your money troubles, and I understand that, but where's Amanda telling me that now that I'm angry and informed, here's what I can do about it? Because it's like I want I want an outlet. I have the anger. I have, you know, I have the anger that you call for, the cathartic, angry description. But I don't really know what to do. Like, I support you the best that I can, but what can I do? Where's Amanda telling us what we need to do? That's my question. All right. Thanks, Jay. Keep up the great work. Uh, keep the help that people keep having the money rolling for you. Thanks. Bye. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. First of all, to Nick, thank you for the kind uh, messages and, and all of the support. But I gotta ask, what did you think of the special wallpaper? You can't get it for any price anywhere. It was the motivation for you to engage in the Referomatic. We heard that you signed up. I can confirm that you reached that magic number of five referrals. And for everyone else, I sent Nick an email and asked the same question, and I just haven't heard back in time uh, for this commentary. But I'm dying to know, what did you think of the special phone and tablet wallpapers that were the motivation for uh, referring the show. On that note, a quick thanks to a new referrer, David W., who succeeded in making his first referral. 
If anyone wants to sign up, the link is right in the show notes, or you can go to bestofleft.com slash refer. And secondly, in response to Zach the Theologian, obviously, thank you for your message, and I, I fully understand where you're coming from. That feeling you're having is exactly the reason why we do activism. In this particular case, we did know that the relief bill was pretty much on the verge of being finalized, and so we didn't think it was worth a whole activism segment that would be out of date almost immediately. But there is more to it. So in response to your actual question as to where Amanda has been in general, here's what she's been up to. So she, you know, worked straight through the election as as we all did. You know, we pumped out as much content as we could in the run up to the election, putting activism segments in just about every episode, I think. And right after that, understandably, we all needed a break, but that's also about the time that she began dealing with the healthcare industry. Again, longtime listeners will know that Amanda has a chronic disease, sort of, but not quite cancerous tumors. Not quite cancer, but not quite not cancer. So anyway, she has a handful of tumors in her leg, which she's had for 15 years or something like that. So it's, it's something that just gets dealt with in an ongoing way. And periodically, she has to engage with the healthcare system. And the new twist, I mean, like the, the regular horrors are all still there, but the new twist is that she's now not just expected to pay through the nose for all of the services and deal with multiple agencies and the healthcare and, and her primary care and the specialist care. She doesn't just have to do all of that. She now has to do the work of the administrative staff. So, when she tries to get a referral from her primary doctor to go see the specialist doctor, the administrative staffs have now begun to tell her that it's her job to take the information that they give her about the referral to the specialist. She had the patient is now the go between, whereas before the primary doctor office would speak directly with the specialist doctor office. And literally, this is what happened. A vice president of the corporation that runs not even the health insurance company involved, but the company that employs the doctors in some, you know, collaboration of doctors decided that that's what should happen. That instead of the administrative staff doing the administrative work, it's now the patient's job to do the administrative work for them. We literally don't know what the administrative staff does anymore other than to give Amanda like codes and bizarre information that means nothing to her and says, okay, now call the referral office for the specialist and give them this information that we just gave you and everything should be fine. So right after the election, she started dealing with that. Pretty soon thereafter, we had the financial emergency hit, and we all kicked into high gear, uh, having barely recovered from the election. So Amanda was doing design work for our merch store, logistics for the Referomatic, brainstorming for hours per day with me, trying to figure out what we should do about our, our situation, and literally a bunch of other stuff that I can't remember. And that brings us right up to within the last week or two. And she's been working double time for her 
other communications client so that she could take a little bit of vacation over the holidays because her other client isn't as accommodating as this show is thanks to our members. Last year, I polled the members asking how much vacation time we should take, and they voted to give us a French number of weeks off, way more than I had been taking based on my own judgment. And and so we get to have this vacation time from the show, but she has to get her other client all squared away, preloading a bunch of work through the holidays so that she can finally get some time off and, and we can sort of hurry up and relax. We, we've both been scrambling to to close out the work for this year. So I told her that she got called out for being absent recently. And uh, so this, this is what she whipped up in just a couple of minutes. Welcome to today's activism. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. This is your reminder that the Georgia Senate runoff election is just a few weeks away on January 5th. If you're looking for an effective way to help Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff beat two cartoonishly corrupt and cowardly Republican senators and put Mitch McConnell in the minority again, here's what you can do. Go to showingupforracialjustice.org slash gaining ground. That's Surge, and they have partnered with Southern Crossroads to form the Gaining Ground campaign, which is focused on making sure white people do their part to help establish democratic control of the Senate to have more favorable conditions for progressive policies. Wherever you are, you can sign up to phone bank and call white Georgia voters or donate to the effort. If you live in Georgia, you can sign up to canvas at one of their five field offices throughout the state. So head to showing up for racialjustice.org slash gaining ground right now to get involved. We've also linked in the show notes to Amanda's activism segment from early November that includes five other ways to support get out the vote efforts in Georgia before the runoffs. So check that out too. You happy now, Zach? I, I added that last part. She didn't, uh, she didn't say that. She was very nice and gracious about the whole thing. And so now just a last couple of notes before we finish off the year. This is just a a quick reminder that uh, I was reminded of today, which is for anyone who decides to partake in a viewing of It's a Wonderful Life, you can take some extra enjoyment in knowing that it was investigated by the House Un-American Activities Committee for promoting communism. So that's a, a bonus jolt of enjoyment you can get from that. Also, and I, I may have recommended that people put this on their radars last year, but I, I really recommend the new version of A Christmas Carol co-produced by FX in the U.S. and the BBC starring uh, Guy Pierce. It is definitely pretty dark. It's probably not suitable for most children. I, I just looked it up. Common Sense Media says it's uh, good for 15 plus, and I would say that's about right. It takes the story into some new and really interesting directions, putting more focus on Scrooge's abuses as an employer, and not just regarding Bob Cratchit either. And for the anti-capitalist-minded among us, I find the whole package from start to finish to be more satisfying than any other version I've seen. I wish that Hulu was paying me to say this. They are not, but that is where I think Americans can find it to stream, and I think those in the UK should be able to find it on the BBC iPlayer. 
if you live elsewhere, give it a search and, and see if you can find it in your country. Thanks again, of course, to anyone who's been signing up for memberships, gift memberships, making one-time donations, buying our merch, or signing up for the Referralmatic to help keep the show going strong right now in our time of need. As always, this show only exists because you all make it possible. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. We will be back next year, but keep an eye on the feed for some best of episodes and bonus material. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design, webmastering, occasional bonus show co-host, and uh, everything else she does. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Potter's Vale.